Welcome to this special episode of the IPA's Looking Forward podcast, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. You're listening to Scott Hargraves, editor of the IPA Review, and I'm joined today in our Melbourne studio by RMIT University's Dr Chris Berg, also a fellow of the IPA, and finally my colleague, Dr Bella Debrera, who is director of the IPA's Foundations of Western Civilization program. This is the second in our series of special episodes. Last week we interviewed Andrew Roberts, author of Churchill, Walking with Destiny, and this week we're joined by Professor Stephen Hicks, author of Explaining Postmodernism, Skepticism and Socialism from Rousseau to Foucault. Professor Hicks is visiting Australia in March. I'll give you the details later, or you can look them up now at truearrowevents.com. Originally from Canada, he is a professor of philosophy at Rockford University in Illinois, where he is also executive director of the Centre for Ethics and Entrepreneurship. Anyone listening with an interest in Ayn Rand will be delighted to know he is also a senior scholar at the Atlas Society, which is dedicated to furthering objectivist thought. On the line now from Rockford, Illinois, Professor Stephen Hicks, welcome to Looking Forward. Uh, thanks for that introduction. Appreciate being here. Great. Look forward to having you in Australia. Thanks, um, Stephen, for joining us. Um, uh, it's really exciting. And I, I read your book uh, many years ago in its first edition and really excited to see that there's an expanded mm. edition coming out. And now we've got the um, Australian um, copy. But for, for the benefit of our listeners, um, uh, uh, why don't you take us through the, the thesis of your book and, and you, mm. what, you, what you've done for the readers? Okay. Well, uh, postmodernism is a very vigorous intellectual and cultural movement, really for the last two generations, uh, perhaps two generations ago, more of an intellectual movement. And in the last generation, uh, certainly ensconced in uh, much academic institutions, but also spilling out into broader cultural manifestation. So we we see it in uh, not only higher education, but also primary education. We see it in certain strains of, of activism. So the question is, uh, since it's vigorous and it seems uh, so adversarial to much of what kind of Western civilization and increasingly globalization uh, civilization stand for, what what is this movement? That's what initially got me interested in it. Now you can approach it uh, either by taking the big names in the movement. So uh, people who are going through undergraduate and graduate school now, uh, particularly in the humanities and social sciences, are expected to know Michel Foucault, Jacques Derrida, Lyotard, Jean-Francois Lyotard, Richard Wardy, and any number of others. And they are often put under this label of, uh, of being postmodern. So we can approach it through what their views are. And of course, there are differences among them, but they seem to be the leading lights, the intellectual strategists uh, for much of what is going on. So where are they coming from? And there are a lot of uh, themes that we would call skeptical themes, certain forms of relativistic themes, the idea that there is no kind of universal human nature, there are no universal principles. Uh, often there's a, an adversarial cynicism that runs through the movement, that uh, this idea about rights and uh, getting along with each other and that we're making progress, uh, that we can achieve truth. Uh, those concepts are often put in scare quotes or outright denied right, by, by these thinkers. Uh, and then the question, of course, is if you take that seriously, philosophically, what does it then mean for the law? What does it mean for our understanding of our history, for how we should educate children, what we should be doing uh, in, our, in our political institutions? Now, another way to, uh, I think, to approach it is uh, to say you know, the label, uh, Lyotard is the first to use postmodern in a philosophical sense. Uh, uh, so what is uh, the breadth of this label? And what uh, that seems to indicate is you have to have something to say about the entire modernity, right? the entire modern world or the entire project. And uh, 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 if you're going to get past that or post that, then you're saying that in some sense, modernism is finished. And what we do find in all the leading postmodern thinkers is an idea that either 
modernism and its aspirations for truth and progress and uh, equal rights for all was a fraud from the beginning, and uh, they're concerned to show that that was a cover for various unsavory motives, right? Or it's more a matter of unintended consequences that may be that uh, that philosophical outlook that we call the modern project, uh, uh, the Enlightenment view, uh, got some things wrong. And then what happens is as that becomes increasingly institutionalized, society gets worse and worse. And what we then find in the postmodern thinkers is a very vigorous critique of the modern world. And typically from their perspective, it's not simply a matter of, you know, we've made progress on some fronts, but we, uh, we're, we're, we're not doing so well in other fronts. And that overall, they think the, the negatives outweigh the bads. What we find from the postmoderns is a vigorous fundamental critique that basically everything in our society is wrong, unjust, misguided, that we've reached a nadir. And so their job is to point out all of the flaws in our society, critique all of them. And it's not necessarily that they have an alternative to that. Uh, in many cases, they're too cynical uh, about the possibility <laughs> of, uh, of of making positive predictions about the future. But nonetheless, they see themselves as deep critics of everything in our does, society. What, what does what does that Go mean ahead. for what does that mean for a agenda? So, what is a postmodern agenda? Uh, obviously, a postmodern mm. is a, a not modern agenda. But what does it look like? And I, I know you sort of draw some of this out in the book. Yes. Well, one of my themes is that it's not an accident that all of the first and second generation leading postmodernists are from the left, typically from the very far left. Uh, and of course, most postmoderns have rejected classical Marxism and they are into some sort of other program. And as postmodernism has uh, become more widespread, there's not the case that all of the postmoderns now are, 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 are of the left. But one of the important things about the genealogy right, or the history of this movement is that all of the leading practitioners and all of the activists come out of the left. And one of the things that it has happened to the left in the last half century, perhaps longer, but certainly in the last half century, is a deep disappointment with the aspirations for leftist ideals. So if you think of yourself uh, as a young person, you want to create a beautiful, moral, noble, ideal society. And if for whatever reason you latch on to leftism, chances are very good that some sort of classical Marxism or neo-Marxism is going to be the version of idealistic left philosophy that you are going to, to come to believe. And it will come to form a deep part of your identity, and particularly as a young person with all of your young person's energy and idealism, you're going to be very hopeful that in your generation, uh, the world will overthrow what you take to be all of the evil and exploitation that it has, and that a beautiful moral society is going to come into existence. What happened in the first generation of postmoderns, this is now in the 1950s and the 1960s, probably 1968, uh, March marked uh, 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 a benchmark year, right, for this movement was uh, a deep disappointment in the possibility of any sort of classical leftism and its positive agenda coming to fruition. Uh, that the failures in the Soviet Union, the failures of the various student movements, uh, the, uh, the the uh, the continued flourishing of Western liberal democracies and uh, the reinvigoration of various kinds of uh, liberal capitalism and so on were deeply disappointing. And uh, what you find is a kind of crisis in all of the leading thinkers, uh, a rejection of the idealism uh, and the belief that because of the, the, the failures of, say, classical Marxism, various kinds of neo-Marxism to predict where society is going to go and that genuinely there's going to be a revolution, a deep sense of despair. And what you then get is uh, a view that all we can really do is continue to critique capitalism, critique liberal democracy, critique whatever we take Western civilization to be and to point out its flaws. And so we end up with a, a critical movement that does not have a positive replacement. And that's what's been driving much of postmodernism. Now, the, the technical label, yes, is kind of a skepticism toward meta-narratives. And so once you take that seriously, you're not going to be telling positive big picture stories anymore. All you've got is small stories that are critical. Stephen, would you say that um, 
So there is really no end goal as such for, for the left for these postmodernists. It's just more of a, it's just more of a keeping yeah. the re revolution and keeping the the um, keeping the revolution going. They don't seem to have an end goal yeah. because you say that they've lost. Yes, them. yes, yes, and no. That's a nice way to put it. I don't know if you've seen the movie The Fight Club. Mm, yes, uh, but. Uh, there, what you have is a kind of, uh, you, know, you know, personal quest, psychological revolutionism. And, you know, initially in the, the movie, the person is fighting because he wants to break out of the prison that he sees his life as uh, having become the, the emptiness there. And that out of that transformation, he's going to become perhaps a, a better man, a better human being. But in the end, it's a matter of you want to fight for the sake of fighting and you want to, in that glorious final scene, uh, uh, blow up the entire system. So uh, and be... that seems to be what the what is animating. Now, out of that, of course, you might say it's going to be uh, just fighting uh, and that maybe your particular schism or your subgroup will then prevail in the fight. You'll be in a position to put your agenda in whatever that agenda is in place. So they seem to be defining themselves by by the, the revolution rather than by by an outcome. Yes, exactly right. And yeah. you have, you and have in written, a way this. The, Stephen, go ahead. You have written about uh, also that has a an emotional linkage as well to uh, I guess dreams of violence, the the frustration one might feel uh, that one has been on the on the losing side, that uh, one, mm. one's ideas become increasingly entwined with the thoughts of how glorious it would be to finally tear everything down. Yes. Uh, if you experience a crisis of faith, then you start from a position of exaltation and hope, and then the realization that that is failing is is crushing in its own right. But then you also do self-evaluate. You say, I bought into very seriously, and I committed myself to what seemed to be the losing bet. I'm on the, you know, to put it in grandiose terms, I'm on the wrong side of history, and that says something about me. I think it does take a certain amount of psychological strength to be able to say I was wrong and I'm going to reopen myself up to new thinking and looking at the evidence and repackage myself. But we do know that one psychological self-protection mechanism is for people to double down and that rather than admit that they were wrong, they will continue to berate the system for not uh, uh, just kind of going along with their ideals and then want to destroy the system rather than have to admit that they're wrong. So just thinking about education here and, and um, you know, mm. you mentioned that there's this sense that there's a feeling of um, that they're on the losing side in, in, in a sense and that there's the sort of the anger that comes out and the frustration that comes out of being on the losing side. But if you look at um, education here and you look at um, primary schools and secondary schools and university, there's very much a sense that um, that they've won because you look at what they teach and you look at this, the subject matter and it's, it's all completely postmodernist, um, even at sort of, you know, primary mm. school age. So how would you, how would you explain that? How would you explain the sense that on the one hand, um, you know, that they seem to, you say that they're motivated by, by this anger and loss, but on the other hand, for, for externally, right. it looks like they've won. Yeah, a couple of things. Part like that's uh, generational. When I was speaking earlier, it was about the, the first or perhaps the first two generations, which was the high intellectual movement. And they're thinking broad uh, political, cultural revolution strokes. When they realize that fails in the 50s and 60s and on into the 70s, then there is a, a new strategy, what's sometimes called the long march through the institutions strategy. Now, a crude version of that then just says a lot of the activists stay in university, they get their PhDs or they get their master's degree and they become teachers and professors. And so they then go into education and that demographically has been very successful. So then I think we get to what you're talking about, Bella, that numerically uh, they uh, have a large number of people in educator roles and they have been very successful at reshaping many of the curricula. But still, from their perspective, what they uh, typically say is they still see themselves uh, in relation to the broader world as a beleaguered minority. Mm. That, yes, we are in positions of influence inside certain key cultural sectors, education included, but we're within a broader society that just doesn't get it. Right? They still think in terms of you know, truth, justice and the American way or whatever the Australian yeah. version mm. of that is. Yeah. You know, that, that individuals, if they're given freedom, can, uh, can, can become 
you know, better human beings and they're all ultimately on the same side and we're making progress. So what they then see is uh, that they still need to uh, double down and do a better job of educating this generation students so that when they get out, they're not going to buy into that false modernist enlightenment project. Stephen, I'm interested in sort of drilling down on the the political consequences of this. And, and you, you make some interesting arguments and you've made on the podcast already about the relationship sort of between postmodernism and Marxism and and therefore mm. through that relationship the the socialist either uh, policy agenda or, or so forth and 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 I, I've got a slightly different interpretation I'd quite be interested in in your response to so to my mind the socialism uh, the the worldview of socialism is the basic is the apotheosis of the modernist project, the idea that you can apply reason at a macro scale to plan the entire economy, holus bolus, from the top down, that is high modernism at its at its worst and most destructive sense. And um, James C. Scott Singh, like a state, um, really spells this out really clearly, how um, big government of the mid-20th century through the application of nothing but what it saw as reason imposed its will mm. on 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 the people um uh, and and postmodernism to so my kind mind of seems like a, an interpretation of the enlightenment project the, yeah that's precisely right so it, there's a um and postmodernism as i see it is a rejection against those um uh, against that sort of conceit that belief that you could plan mm. the whole economy but it is also absolutely true that these postmodernists when you ask them for their policy recommendations even though they have cut down the power of reason even though they have rejected any notion of um pure empiricism or even planning still think that you can plan the economy mm. still think that all oh, mm. what we need is a strong state and a strong state which is smart, a, gr- a green new deal a green new deal you just need experts and sure. how, how do we how do we bridge that gap i don't I, uh, there seems to be a huge gap between postmodern um uh, philosophy and postmodern political philosophy if you if you will mm. okay Yes, on the, the first part of what you're saying about uh, the apotheosis of socialism, uh, I think it's important to realize that socialism in the modern world does not start with kind of a high Marxism, we're going to plan the entire economy, that you have a century of uh, various kinds of what Marx dismissed as uh, utopian socialism, and they were not uh, high enlightenment pro-reason as, uh, as you're describing. So what you find, for example, in Rousseau, with whom I, I, I start my book, is very much a rejection of the idea that reason is particularly powerful in human fair affairs, uh, a much more small-scale, tribal, back-to-nature approach to what proper socialism is going to be. And Rousseau's very argument is that if we go too far down the reason road, what reason does is uh, give individuals right the sense that they can plan and run their own lives and that they don't need the state, they don't need other people. And so from that perspective, reason and the enlightenment is the enemy of a proper kind of socialism. Now, I do think it is fair to say that by the time we get to the middle part of the uh, 19th century, the generation of Marx, uh, the Enlightenment has been largely successful in many intellectual sector, uh, sectors, and the uh, the various kinds of utopian socialism and Rousseauian socialisms of the last century have not gotten anywhere. And so I think it is a fair interpretation of Marx to say that he is a, a hybrid. On the one hand, he has this socialist ethos, and he wants to combine it with uh, an Enlightenment planning uh, notion. Uh, uh, he does call his version of socialism scientific socialism, for example, and that if we think very hard about the way history goes, we can figure it all out and we can see a logical progression that's necessary. Granted, it's a dialectically logical process. So Marxism then is a, a hybrid right, version where it's partly this uh, pre-enlightenment ethos uh, combined with a notion that we can plan everything. Now, then the second part of what you're saying is, uh, I think it is fair to say, if you think that human beings are rational and you are very, and just set aside the political issues altogether, you are a gung-ho, very strong believer in the power of reason, 
Uh, and then for the Enlightenment thinkers, what that in part means is we have to reject tradition for the sake of tradition or uh, the idea that we should just accept on faith certain certain uh, certain fundamental beliefs or seek non-rational mystical insights and so forth. We're not going to do any of that. We are very gung-ho about the power of reason. Then it does become an open question how, just how powerful this reason is. And I do think it's fair to say that some of them want to say uh, more modestly, the power of reason is primarily an individualistic phenomena, and what we are doing is empowering individuals to govern their own lives, but we're not making any pretenses that any one individual can figure out everything and therefore run everything, and that direction of enlightenment reason goes in a much more what we might call market liberal or democratic republican direction. And I do think it's uh, it's important to say that the Enlightenment was not of a piece everywhere that it was applied. If you look at the Scottish and the English Enlightenments, they were much more, I think, in this individualistic direction. But uh, I think your point kicks in that if you go over to the continent, you did find among the French and some of the Germans uh, a, a, a much more robust sense of reason. That in some sense, reason wasn't merely a faculty of the individual. But it was a collectivizing faculty, and perhaps that in some special individuals, kind of all of the forces of reason or all of the power of reason could be aggregated, and then those individuals would be in a position to say, as you put it, organize an entire economy. And so you could then have a kind of aristocratic version of of, of socialism. Most people, of course, would be you know, too ignorant and too focused on their petty affairs. Uh, but on behalf of the people, we can, those of us who are very well educated, who kind of have the, the wisdom of our PhDs collected, and we have you know, a, a, a group of dedicated geniuses, we can organize the economy as a whole. And so I think it's, it's open. This is you know, a, a critique that someone like Friedrich Hayek makes to say that there is a conceit of reason that does come out of the of the Enlightenment, and that can be conjoined with a socialist impetus to, to lead to some problematic directions. Yeah, look, it, it sort of um, uh, I, I agree with that. I, I think the um, it strikes me that a very big part of the economic model that we have about the world as people who are supporters of the free market believe in this idea of spontaneous order. So the economy mm. orders mm. itself, but it does so without the need for a higher authority. This is Adam Smith's invisible hand, yes. as if by an invisible hand right. it orders itself. And it strikes me that that's a very, for lack of a better phrase, that's a postmodern claim. It's not, it's the application, mm. and, and you, you said this, it's the application of reason by entrepreneurs and by individuals acting in their own domain, right. in their own interests, rather than a grand state over the top forcing mm. reason mm -hmm. on others as well. But well, then what you would need to say is your description of how a free market economy works and spontaneous order and all of that, that also is a grand narrative. Right? Yes, yes, and yes. And what the postmoderns, <laughs> uh, as part of their skepticism, will also say, no, no, we can't uh, uh, say that we know that that is true as well. So they are much more skeptical. I think there's a difference between saying individuals have reason, but reason has limits about how much any given individual can know. And perhaps even at the level of an organization, how well-structured business organizations can aggregate knowledge and markets and so on. There are limits to that. And beyond that, we need to be aware that we just don't know. Uh, but at, at to say that, nonetheless, we do know things and <laughs> objectivity is possible. Uh, and the claims that the postmoderns are making, which are much more skeptical. That's, uh, yes, we do believe that we can know things. And... Uh, Combining that point with what you said earlier, so we're in a situation where they're problematizing the the grand narrative of of, of liberal capitalism. Uh, most people, mainstream Australians, as we might call it, ordinary Americans, uh, are getting on with their lives, but the intellectual uh, heights are dominated by a postmodern creed. It seems so. We have this sort of tension where liberal capitalism stumbles on but without sort of moral underpinnings. It's, it's, it's almost like, mm. and, and some social democratic leaders are saying, you know, we will let you go, we will let you continue and we'll allow corporations to operate 
but essentially it's because we need that productive capacity in order to do all these other things. It's, it's sort of uh, divorced from an actual moral order. Is that, is that a sustainable yes. situation for society going forward? Um, well, uh, I mean, one thing you can say is that that compromise that we will, uh, and then from the perspective of people on the left or those who don't think that productivity and profit and competition have a, a moral leg to stand on, uh, that it has worked for the last century and a half or so. And it can, in principle, stumble on that we make a deal. You guys are free to make a lot of money and we're going to, through taxes and various redistributions and, and certain regulations, redistribute a certain amount of that. Uh, as long as we're not killing the goose that's laying the golden eggs, I don't know in principle that that can't, can't carry on for, for a long time. I do think uh, that it does exert a cost on people if you think that you are working and that your work only has moral significance to the extent that other people are allowed to take stuff from you or that you are a servant, that that is demoralizing for, for human beings. Uh, I do think people who are genuinely engaged in productive work, who love their work, that that is uh, a moral sanction in itself. Of course, if we live in a society, we want other people to be productive and enjoying their lives, and we like to do business and interact with them. So we do like that our products and our services benefit other people as well. So that win-win is a profoundly gratifying uh, psychological state for us to be in. It's also a profoundly moral state that you are committed to dealing with human beings on a win-win on a basis. So... I do think uh, we should be able to say morally, look, your life is yours as an individual. Your, your religious life is yours. Your sexual life is yours. Your artistic life, your business life is yours. And the goal is for you to, uh, to live it, to, to, to flourish and to enjoy it. And the fact that other people benefit from your product, that is, that's good. And that's moral, but that is a, a secondary issue. So I don't think businesses should be apologizing. And I do think that it is an immorality uh, if you think that you have a moral sanction or any justification for taking other people's product against their will. Uh, that's, that's an immorality, and unfortunately, that's a compromise. It's also deeply demoralizing socially. Um, I just do have a, um, a question, a sort of... A a comment on Scott's earlier um, observation that there's a mm. there's a disconnect between uh, people working for certain corporations or for government departments and what they what they believe and what what is being imposed on them by the the, the company or the or the 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 organisation they work for. So, for example, um, last year in Victoria, one of our state departments is was trying to force everyone to use they on a certain day of the month rather than he or she. So they were sort of, you know, it's this whole gender mm. pronoun thing. How does that, how does that work then for the individual who, who, who feels that they want, want to be productive and that they want to work for this company, but then the company they're working for is actually imposing a, an ideology on them that they don't, they don't agree with. How, mm -hmm. is, how is this sustainable? Um, we've also seen, what was it? Was it ANZ recently that... Um, one of our banks. One of our banks was, was, was telling everyone that out of ideological... Um, if they didn't agree with celebrating Australia Day on January the 26th, they could take another day off. So it's sort of um, mm -hmm. imposing a, a, moral, a moral code on, on the employees. So how does that work? How do, how, how do you see that going? Yeah. On the, on the first point, when you mentioned Victoria, I wasn't clear whether it was uh, a business in Victoria voluntarily trying this out with its employees or if it was a government mandate. It's, it's a government department. Okay. Yeah. All right. Then I think that makes a, a huge moral difference. I have no problem with private associations, including businesses, uh, working out what kind of speech codes and what their, their internal ethos is going to be. People have the freedom of uh, entry and exit. If you don't like what uh, uh, the ethos of your company is, you're free to, to quit. And also, of course, the company, if they don't like the ethos that you're bringing into the company, they shouldn't uh, uh, be forced to hire you. And that's because uh, a business should be a voluntary network of relationships between the business and its customers, the business and its vendors, 
the business and its and its employees. Uh, and all of these things about, you know, what language we should use with each other should be worked out through ongoing negotiation, discussion, freedom of entry, freedom of exit. I do think it's a very different uh, thing if you have a government agency, because we always have to remember that a government agency is an institution of force. What all government agencies are doing is to say that you do not have an option to disagree on this. If you violate this policy in principle, we can send the police after you. Every law and regulation is backed up by the police. And in principle, you can be fined, put in prison, right, and so forth. So it is the attempt to force language changes, right, rather than negotiate language changes. And that is a profound moral difference. Yeah, the, I mean, that raises the the question of freedom of speech that you've written um, a great deal of interesting work on. Um, the way I see the debate about freedom of speech is over the last couple of decades is that we the, the left were very firm on freedom of speech with anti-obscenity laws, anti-sedition laws, and so forth. And over in about the 1970s or 1980s, depending on when legislation was passed in different jurisdictions, mm -hmm. that really switched. Um, there was a very sharp change towards the anti-discrimination law, racial hatred acts, and so forth that we have in Australia, in Canada, uh, not so much in the United States, but potentially in the United States yes. in the future. Um, yes. uh, it, it, to, to your mind, how does that fit into the story of postmodernism? What is what is the postmodern approach to freedom of speech in that in that context? Yes. Well, this is where uh, yeah, postmodernism's broad. Uh, cognitive orientation or anti-cognitive orientation right comes in so what they will argue is that speech and language are not cognitive in the sense that they are tools that we use for understanding reality and that it's individuals who need to use the language and the and, and all of the tools sophisticated tools of language that uh, that we've evolved for individuals to come to formulate their own beliefs and guide their own actions in the world. The postmoderns are fundamentally skeptical, so they believe there is a gulf between what goes on in our heads, including all of the language that we use, and any uh, connection to an external reality. If you combine that with the notion that they don't believe that individuals actually exist, uh, <laughs> that rather individuals are constituted by their various group relationships, then what you have is the idea that groups have their languages, but individuals are the vehicles through which various language games and language processes are worked out, and that different groups are in conflict with each other. So language then stops being a tool of cognition that individuals use and starts being a weapon that groups need to use in offense and defense against each other. Now that then leads to the question about free speech. If you think language is a weapon, well then speech is a weapon, and what you want is for your group to have the most powerful weapons, and for the groups with which you are in adversarial relationships to have weaker weapons or no weapons at all. So just as you would want to uh, you know, take uh, swords and guns away from the groups that you're opposed. If you can find a legislative way to do so and give them only to your group, you will go ahead and do so. So what we have then is the question of speech and the power of speech comes to be used only from the perspective of does it advance my group's interests? So it's no longer a universal principle that everybody can do. It's a matter of do I think that the group this group is using speech in a way that is disadvantageous for my group. If so, I am in favor of limiting their speech. Do I think my group having certain speech abilities uh, will empower my group? Then I will be willing to do so. So there's a very pregnant quotation from uh, Herbert Marcuse in the 1960s, and this ties right into your question about the postmodern term, that uh, uh, Leftists did typically favor free speech up until the 60s or 70s or so precisely because they thought that free speech would dis or sorry empower the groups that were on the receiving end 
of various social forces, that they needed to speak truth to power to overcome various injustices. And so the problem was, from their perspective, that the groups that they were in favor of were being censored. And so we just need to give them more free speech. But what uh, happens then if you start to think more postmodernly is that you don't think on an even free speech playing field, your group is going to prevail. So what you want to do, and the way Marcuse put it, this is kind of all over the internet, is to say that uh, we need to have liberating tolerance or liberating speech for the left, but uh, restrictions placed on the right. And he's very forthright about the double standard there. But it strikes me as there's a and, and I'll try to get this out because I think it's a complicated but important point. Um, it strikes me that there's a contradiction that they, they don't... So if, if words or speech doesn't accord to a base reality that is objectively there, then the meaning of those words is created in a sort of decentralized, disaggregated fashion by the movements of social groups. How then... Yes. And that's their argument. And so so in, in some way, the meaning of those words is kind of a bit unknowable because no single person can decide what the meaning of a certain term is. It, it's it's sort, of, yes. sort of spontaneously ordered. Now, if that's the case, if that's the case, then how on earth do they think that they can plan which words should be said and which words shouldn't be said and in which context? It, it just strikes me that mm. in order to have a restriction on freedom of speech, you need to have a state planner to decide which words or speech we're going to restrict. But the postmodern story tells me, in my interpretation, that that is not possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I would say the, uh, the answer is to look at it as any piece of legislation uh, uh, from a somewhat s- cynical politician's perspective. You're no <laughs> That's longer how I look at most legislation. Making- <laughs> <laughs> You're not making any grand claim that this piece of legislation uh, is true or well-defined or even that you have read all of the language in the bill, particularly in this omnibus bill. It has arisen out of various conflicting forces and uh, behind-the-scenes deals, and nobody necessarily knows what it means. But the fact that it gets passed does mean that there is some language that is out there that can be used creatively by your group. Uh, against various other groups. It gives you uh, some leverage in the debate. And of course, it's going to be an ongoing struggle and ongoing interpretive battles, but you know, they, uh, they're willing to enter the fray. Stephen, we're very much looking forward to continuing this conversation when you're out in Australia next month. Mm. Uh, from I think your first event is on March the 9th. You'll be joined on stage in Melbourne, at, yes, yes, in Melbourne, here in Melbourne. At, at many of these events, you'll be joined uh, by Bella. Yes, I'm going to be shadowing you. <laughs> and fielding what no doubt will good. be many, many questions uh, from the audience. So uh, Melbourne, Adelaide, Brisbane and Sydney. And also uh, you have master classes uh, in Melbourne and Sydney, which yes. really give people an opportunity to uh, dig deep on these issues, which do need unpacking. Exactly. You can find out yeah, more information about that at uh, truearrowevents.com. Looking forward to really drilling down onto all of these issues. That'll be marvellous. So, As I say, you can find more information at truearrowevents.com. Keep listening. We'll be back in a moment with uh, further reflections on postmodernism and the wonderful interview that we've just had. Thank you so much, Professor Stephen Hicks. Thanks for hosting me. Good questions. James Bolt, our fantastic producer. What did you Thank think you. of that? Uh, yeah, well, that was a really great discussion you guys had. And then uh, Stephen Hicks jumped on the Young IPA podcast as well, which will be out by the time everyone's listening to this. So go download that. It's a bit of a self-promotion there. Just a little bit self-promotion. Yeah. Yep. Uh, he's a really interesting thinker and really fun guy. And it's just a really cool way of approaching, the like, to just see how many different dimensions the postmodernism fight is on. On the Young IPA podcast, he's talked about how it's over religion, it's over science, it's over uh, not just universities, but all these other things. So the multidimensional aspect to me was really interesting. Did it give you uh, stuff to work with, Bella? Did you, uh, are you, are you yeah, fired up? For I'm, your... I'm fired up because I think I'd like to talk to him more about the universities and education and things and the primary schools and stuff that's going on. I think that that's personally, I find that much more interesting and I didn't even get to broach history with him as well. So that's what I'm looking forward to when he comes over. In in your history work, in your PhD, did you come across sort of postmodern interpretations of 
Uh, no, no, I didn't. I came across I came across political interpretation. It, it, the subject that I looked at had become very political, but not necessarily um, postmodernist. I don't know how to explain that so much. I'm, I'm, <laughs> uh, I'm thinking of the book. Uh, what was it, uh, Bella? Uh, Meta history um, uh, by the yeah, guy, Hayden but, White. by Hayden White, yeah. which really uh, had this exhaustive taxonomy of uh, this idea of historiography that there is no such thing as history. There are just modes of history. You know, uh, uh, some people write history this way, other people write it that way, and it's it's they're just sort of like cognitive schema. It's all um, uh, subjective, really. So, but isn't is, they, they, isn't pulled, they pulled apart the very idea of history? Well, history history is fiction. History that's that's fictive. History, yes, it is fictive. So history or or, is, or history is narrative. And I think yeah. uh, isn't there an element that that is so? Here's the here's the alternative case. So isn't there an element that that is kind of true? Well, yes. No, I mean, like, it, it, so history is narrative. It's it's linear in its narrative. Yeah. Usually, the, the war stories are written written by the people that are still alive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or the, victor, yeah. the victims. Yeah. yeah no. No. Yeah. But but yeah. but I mean, one of the strongest critiques of so much of historical work, particularly classical liberal historical work, has been the accusation that it's Whig centred history. The in fact, what we're doing is we're imposing a narrative, like the Marxists do, a narrative that history will conform to that long-run story of continuous change. So um, the world was bad in the Dark Ages and eventually it gets better and you get democracy and you get liberty and you get um, individual rights and so forth and it just gets better over time. And that's the and the anti-Whig history um, critique is really powerful, I think. It's, it's, it's not inevitably the case that the world gets better and histories that tell that narrative or imply that narrative are not always going to be accurate or not do not necessarily help us see our past um, uh, as clearly as some alternative approaches well I think I mean the problem now is that they're just that the historians are looking at the past just through class race and gender it they're, they're not even they're not even worrying about events yeah Chris, Chris or, that's or right. Themes, or they're not worrying about what happened in, in in during the Enlightenment. They're not really worrying about what <laughs> happened before the Enlightenment. They're just worrying about who was being oppressed at the time, really. And, and that, that, I mean, it's just so it's so limited. It's just it's. So I'd like to talk to him more about this. That'd be good because Chris, um, what you were talking about is competing narratives, mm. and and that is a different thing to what the postmodernists are doing, which is deconstructing the very idea that there can be a narrative, like you talked about the Marxist narrative opposing the, the Whig narrative, but in both cases. And this is why I'm now starting to understand why Neil Ferguson had such a moving obituary of Eric Hobsbawm, the Marxist historian, because at least Hobsbawm was interested in facts and quoted economic data about the rise of the development of the working class in, in Britain. So you had these alternate, alternate narratives about uh, what was actually happening at the time with some reference to evidence, but we're now past that it's not it's not the marxist histories that are driving it it's the sort of thing bella's talking about yeah it's just it's there's no histories that there are no histories that are driving it it's just the present that's driving it yeah look but i i think that's always the case in some uh, to some degree so history is always uh, it would be hard to write a history that didn't have your your existing world in in front of center and you can see well before the postmodern turn you can see interpretations for instance of um, uh, the the move from Republican Rome to Imperial Rome being described as a revolution in the um, in the first half of the twentieth century, you, you can you can very clearly see the um, interpretation of the past through yes, but historical. I think that's what defines a good historian and a bad historian. A bad historian is 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 someone who can only see that see these past events through the through the the eyes of the the contemporary eyes. Uh, a good historian can trans transplant themselves to that period and. Um, and and try and use their imagination in a way. Even though <laughs> you, you, it's, it, it isn't. It, 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 you have to take a, a leap of faith to imagine yourself in the the twelfth century, um, f- coming from this modern sensibilities of comfort of the twenty first century. But th- I think that's a, a, a good historian can do that and not impose uh, uh, modern sensibilities on the past. And that's exactly what they're doing now. So I guess it's like uh, if your history book has you as the main character, something's gone awry. 
Like yes. if, if yes. you're the That's central right. focus yeah. of it. Why are they no Most of my books Why have can't I flush the toilet? Because it hasn't been invented yet. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'd, I'd be interested also when you um, uh, have the opportunity to interview him again on stage, if if, um, if you can draw out uh, what I think is this really interesting relationship between postmodernism and the way we think about the spontaneously ordered economy mm. as well. And and I've, I, I've read a fair bit of Foucault and I, the reason I've read Foucault is because later in life, Michel Foucault, um, tells a, his students to go off and read Mises, Ludwig von Mises and Friedrich Hayek, the great Austrian economists. And, and the reason that he told them that, in my interpretation, is because they're really talking about the same thing. They're talking about this idea that um, uh, you don't plan society, society evolves. Society evolves out of subjective um, beliefs about the, the good life, subjective values, and so forth. And that's where we get a lot of modern free market economics from. Um, it'd be really interesting to try to drill down um, on, on that relationship. So isn't, isn't the economics, the, the belief that we have in the spontaneous order of markets and institutions, isn't that a kind of postmodern idea? That's what I'll be asking him on stage. Because <laughs> I can't answer that question. Yeah, the, the, and he might, he might well break down, depending on the level of interest uh, in the audience. Perhaps it's more for the masterclasses. But, yeah, I, I was intrigued uh, to read, um, you know, we did, we'd, people like me perhaps tend to run them all together. I think uh, Roger Scruton called it the postmodernism, the, you know, the Parisian nonsense machine. But... <laughs> Um, yep. This idea that Foucault and Derrida actually hated each other, and uh, Derrida was really uh, very much deconstructing everything, but Foucault actually had an idea of sources and uh, quoted other thinkers, and was perhaps uh, strangely open to it. So perhaps um, to the extent, Chris, that you see some value in Foucault, it may not necessarily apply to the others. No, that's right. And look, my uh, let me give a Lacan. Let, let me give a well, so we'll talk about Lacan in a moment. But uh, let me give a defense of Foucault. I mean, so much of what Foucault wrote has really shaped our understanding of the world around us. So his um, he is the the thinker that more than anyone else really brought out Jeremy Bentham's Panopticon as a model for the way to think about surveillance and um, and oppression in modern society. That's really Foucault's work when he related the shape of prisons to to modern society yes, itself. Because and he only looked at he, his whole interest in history was was crime and and um, the sort of the, the the darker side of of society, wasn't it? That and it, because he only he thought that everything else was was a waste of. Time. <laughs> well, I mean, he's interested. <laughs> he's interested in power in that sense, and yeah, it's um, the whole power, power yeah. idea, power struggle. Power well, knowledge. one other thing that interests me about a lot of postmodern, and and Stephen in his book really brings this out quite clearly, is that so much of the postmodern um, mode of thinking was bringing. Um, psychiatry into philosophy for some reason. So bringing, um, and the way. Stephen frames this as well in the in the sort of 1950s or so. They brought Freud into into philosophy and then into political philosophy, and it has always struck struck me um, that the role of psychiatrists, psychotherapy in developing these really hard left postmodern frameworks is is quite peculiar. So, um, I many years ago for the IPA review, I wrote a big piece on Slavoj Zizek, who's um, this wild um, neo-Marxist thinker, and he's most influenced by a psychotherapist, um, Jacques Lacan. Uh, it, 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 it's a it's a strange relationship. We we tried to tease but, this out with um yeah. But what 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 Marxism like? You think of how Karl Popper looked at this, and what what is common to both Marxism and and uh, say Freudian thought is a, a complete um, unmooring from. Uh, any sort of evidence evidence base, or they're not false. Neither of them are falsifiable, and so these this is pure idealist philosophy. You just say it is like this. There is this thing called the ego. There is this thing called the id. There are these thing called things called classes, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, and you know the economic development of history. You and then you mash all these things up, and and uh, out of that, bizarrely, uh, you know, guys like uh, Wilhelm Reich. Uh, some of the Frankfurt School, 
they were playing around with these ideas that um, uh, if you joined up Marxism and Freudianism, it was somehow some kind of sexual liberation. But then they were all Stalinists when it actually came to politics. And it's the opposite of liberation. I, I think the commonality is, is that it's all some variants of nonsense. Do, do ideas matter at all in that, in that sense? So is, well, this all, but, but is, this, all, is this all just a cover for power, no, as Foucault No, would. no, but, but the difference is... So <laughs> That's certainly why I'm doing this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're still waiting for it, though. <laughs> Building that power. Oh, you're it's all just it's dancing to my revolution. <laughs> It's a revolution that will never have any ending. Oh, yeah, yeah. But this be. is... A, <laughs> yeah, but no, but the difference is something like, say, a, a Kantian approach, which can be, I, be based in idealism, but then there are ways that you can actually establish some propositions about the world, you know, by, by reference to um, various forms of empiricism and falsifiable hypotheses, these, these kinds of things. Whereas, you know, I don't see any of that in postmodernism. You, you can deconstruct, but you can never reconstruct. You can never get anywhere. You disappear up your own fundamental orifice. Isn't it, isn't it just, it's, I think it's just all, they all just want the destruction of Western civilization. The more you read about it, and I know the, and the more you, you look into it. And Foucault says that, I watched a, Hit an interview with him on, on YouTube that has been hidden in the archives for ages. And he, he says, I want to destroy Western civilization. How, how can this be a good thing? How, how can we sit and defend anything they say? I mean, really, if you take a step back from it, and you can, and you can, you can argue away ar around it and say Foucault's got good things, but I don't think any of them had anything good. I think everything has been terrible. And I think what we're seeing now is a direct result of the damage of postmodernism. How can you sit in a university... You know, university you professorship, you have to and not. say that you want to destroy you can't. You, <laughs> you can. civilization because, because they're eating themselves up. It's, that's the whole point. It's the whole, they've lost, they've lost sight of they 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 want to destroy what is keeping them in in employment, which is one of the which is one of the mysteries of, of, of of the modern world is that they want to destroy what is giving them their their bread and butter, um, and I think they're so short sighted that they don't somehow they think that they'll still survive that they'll still survive this this revolution and this overthrow of western civ and i think they they they're so driven and they're so ideologically driven that they they don't see they don't see what's what's going on that's every utopian thinker in history exactly. it's always that's like right. the thing that we're going for yes. it's all the best parts of yes. what is right now and none of the bad parts yeah. and oh it's somehow all the good we'll and not the it. bad yeah oh, yeah that's so what yeah, it's yeah. all the good and somehow <laughs> yeah. we'll, we'll get there and and we'll we'll, we'll see this utopia and, yeah, and, yeah. and there's going to be a brave new world and we're going to have been part of it yeah, yeah. exactly and if a few people have to get yeah. guillotined well you know, <laughs> it doesn't matter but there's always the end justifies the means but they also assume that it's not going to be them yeah that's what i'm saying it's not going to be them yeah um those other guys are going to get the good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. every per, like every counter revolutionary had no idea they were a counter revolutionary until a hand grabs him on the shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> you next. Yeah, yeah. Darkness at noon is a is a good book to read on that. No, great discussion. No, really great discussion. I think it's been going to be great to um, uh, see Stephen when he's in in Melbourne and around the country. So thank you, Chris Berg. Thank you, James Bolt. Thank you, Bella. Thank you. Back next week with uh, well, back very soon with the regular looking forward podcast. <laughs>